Tan or something. Has anyone else ever done a Frank Zappa show? Um, okay, so I I Because there was. One. I remember there being one. Yeah. And I didn't know until this moment yeah. that it was you, which yeah. makes it... It was me and my dad would listen to it. It okay. was a special thing in my family. Okay, so... Because um, it could have gone... Uh, I did one in the 90s for um, my friend Wayne Station. Uh-huh. He had a small AM thing on 1390. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, did that for almost a year... Uh, never recorded any of them uh, back then, um, and I was like the prelude on Saturday. I did eleven to twelve, and it was a live show. It was cool. And uh, after I, um, uh, after I kind of just got tired of it, another guy took it over. This guy Bruce took it over for a while until the station finally got canned, and then and that was in the nineties. And then it, with WGOT, I did one around. I would say around. Maybe it was somewhere between 2008 and 2010. And um, I did that for about a year. And Did that one have a name? The one yeah, from yeah. 08 to 010? Uh, it was called Panchromatic Radio. That sounds familiar. Yeah. I feel like that. Because, I, I mean, oh. that's, right in, that's right in the era, man. Wow, how yeah. interesting. I bet Things you come heard back it. Around. I bet you heard it. Um, panchromatic is an interesting term. That's a Zappa term um, that he uh, gave to this this sort of art that he created where he would get people underneath a, a giant piano and he would sustain the strings with a weight or something and people would just talk into it. And wow. So you'd get the resonance of all the strings <laughs> in their voices. And and by doing this, he's a, he did this for years and he created these like collages of people's voices, huh. sometimes from different times. You know, some of these conversations never even took place, you know? Right. And uh, so I call it panchromatic radio. And I used to do a similar thing when I recorded the um, the interludes. I, would, I had a piano that I would weigh down with a weight <laughs> and talk into it, you know, and get wow. that kind of effect. Attention to detail, man. It was fun, you know. Uh, and after I did that for about a year, I did, um, I was like, all right, well, I'm done with that. I want to do my own show. And I did a, a thing called the Sonic Circus. For a year, or it was, it went on for a little more than a year, but it was the idea was I did um, four seasons, and each season was um, twelve shows plus a best of, so it was like a a baker's dozen kind of thing, you know. You did a thirteen show, I just call from the other twelve, and all it was was stuff that I had recorded for years and years, and some friends stuff too, anyone who. sent me anything or whatever at the time I was like sure I'll put it on there you know and uh I just took all this stuff because I've been recording music and also just like sounds um just you know cities uh oceans trains people doing drama like uh improv and stuff like that and I did a similar thing to like the panchromatic idea I just took all that stuff and collaged it like crazy, you know, and uh, I did a uh, uh, fifty-two episodes of that, and so you do four, thirteen, you know, uh, four seasons, thirteen each. You get fifty-two shows. I figured that's a year's worth of shows right there. Oh yeah, know? and uh, that was really fun. I, I it, that is actually documented. Um, there's a, a a site I keep called the Sonic Circus, and you can go to the soniccircus.com and. It's pretty weird to listen yeah. to it, actually. I, I like it, but 
It's not like I always tell people if you go and put it on, just like just put it on in the background, let it play for a while. Yeah, well, until, just thank goodness for local radio. Yeah, because yeah. that is that's a vibe. I mean, you're never going to. That's such a specific and singular mm-hmm. piece of audio, like. Right. And yeah, I agree with you. That's exactly what you use it for. <laughs> you like yeah, just... that? I mean, well, not, that's what most people use it for. I personally, and listeners like me, would like get that in headphones. Right. You like try to piece, like, okay, this is, you recorded this object over here and like try to like make it <laughs> academic. Cause I like that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's all bizarre and it's a combination of sort of raw stuff, but with other stuff that is more, you know, like, a little more attention to the like you know well recorded stuff, but mostly it's raw, you know here and there there's just some gems, and I thought I would just try to take everything I had and just document it, you know, and put it in one place, and then I wouldn't have to think about it anymore absolutely you know? so that was like a re- that was your release that was like your album release, yeah. or however you want to think about yeah. it for that period yeah. of like. So how long of a period of time was that of stuff that you're like compiling and now it's yeah because you said it was it's over up. a couple of years but it must have, it must have been much longer than that leading up to it or right stuff and compiling right as I've been recording um, stuff as long as possible um, I got like my first four track in uh, the mid or late eighties you know and we just had four track cassettes and then so it's really from about. No, it's say 86 all the way until that time, which is about 2012 or something like that. Oh, wow. Awesome. This is just all the stuff. One of the best things I ever recorded was a train. I, I used to live not far from here. And there's, you know, there's the train tracks that come kind of through town. And I woke up. I was just at my house. And I woke up. We had the windows open one early one morning. So I heard something that sounded like a fucking right. UFO. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. With that. I don't know if you have to bleep that. Or no, whatever, it's all good. But, um, it sounded like a UFO. I was like, what is that? And I went out on my porch and I could hear it. And what it was was there was a train way off. Could have been miles mm-hmm. in the distance. And the harmonics yeah. from that train were ringing off the tracks just oh, that's across cool. the street. You know? And uh, that was probably like one of the... The better, like, just weird, natural sounds I caught, you know? And um, Did you ever end up using that as a texture? Like, how did that find its way into the... Yeah, I, I have used it in a couple of things. That's cool. I used it in a couple of things, because uh, on that show, I just put it the way it was. Yeah. And then, um, during that time, or even before that, um, I had already used it in a, um, I used to do some plays around town. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to work a lot with a friend of mine, um, named Jessica Arnold, who, uh, she was a director. She was really into theater. Um, I met her around the same time I met, uh, Greg Jones and, um, man, I used to do a lot of music for her plays and so it's definitely found its way into some of those. So you use it as like a stage sound effect yeah, or something? Yeah, yeah. That's cool. And it was just, actually, I can't remember. It was just, um, it's more, it was used as a dream sequence from what I remember. Cool. You know? So it's like fading out for the dream sequence. Like, yeah. Because you couldn't even tell what it was. Right, really. yeah. That's cool. So at that time, so what did you physically use to record the train track? Mm-hmm. What piece of gear? Um... So, um, this was past that. I can give you a long, long, oh, yeah. 
you know, so this is after DAT recorders, you had those solid state, uh, it was an R1, it was an Ederol R1, mm-hmm. and it was a nice little box, had two microphones on it, and uh, that thing was like heaven. Oh, yeah. You know, and I bought that. I think I I actually bought that from doing, um, that was like, when I first got the gig to do Punch and Judy at the fair, mm-hmm. and... Um, uh, do you remember Punch and Judy, like the giant puppets? If you've ever been to the medieval fair um, back in, uh, well, they still they're still in operation. Um, I stopped doing it about mm, uh, maybe almost ten years ago. I don't even remember if I thought about it. I could pinpoint that, but um, Punch and Judy were these giant puppets. Like mm-hmm. you get in there, they were, they were built on pack frames, and they were really like kind of scary looking uh-huh. in a way. You know they. They remind me, always reminded me of um, the look of them. Uh, do you remember a character, a puppet named Lady Elaine on the Mr. Rogers show? She yeah. was like this <laughs> yeah, red-haired yeah, lady, okay. you know, with a big nose. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they looked like giant versions of that, you know? That's cool. And uh, That's we, a fun gig to get. Yeah, yeah. Greg got me that. He called me up one day <laughs> and was like, hey, can you do me a favor? Because he had another person, um, they had just got these new giant puppets, mm-hmm. and uh, he had um, another person lined up to do it, and it was a student of of, of his, and um, they were really big, and the person just couldn't do it. They couldn't <laughs> physically handle it. Wow. And so he called, and he was really in a bind, and he called <laughs> me like two days before we were going to do it. This is around 2001, and... Um, with 2000 or 2001 and uh and he's like can you do me a big favor (laughs) i was like and i was like i just jumped on it i don't know if you know greg um you've you've probably seen him out here he's an older guy um would come out to the old jams here and improvise on the microphone mostly oh yeah he always make up stuff yeah 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 Yeah, he's he's really amazing um he has a whole vibe you're like on an interstellar radio show kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And that's kind exactly. of like just like riffing on stuff. Exactly. Yeah. He's like, welcome to the Starlight Lounge. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. because yeah, it breaks it up. Like if you're jamming with a bunch of people, nobody expects to yeah. have that. You <laughs> yeah. Know? And he'll break he'll cut in and break it yeah. up and all of a sudden just kinda change the whole vibe. Yeah. Which is what you need. It's sometimes, true. Having you know? a yeah, having a speaking MC to just give you those transitions that like it gives mm-hmm. everyone a moment to like break their brainwave. Absolutely, from whatever, whatever the previous thing was. Yeah, it's so true. It's like so. rolling the dice now, you know, and, right. <laughs> and sends you into some place that you didn't even know you were going. You know? Right. And so um, I started working with him at the fair, doing um, Punch and Judy every year. I was doing Judy at the time, which sounds really bad, but. Um, you know, I was. I always tell people I was qualified to do Judy because my mom's name is Judy. Right. So you got I, it in the family. Yeah, I have it, and, and um, so I was doing Judy, and he was doing Punch, and I jumped at the opportunity to just be able to work with him mm-hmm. for two weeks out of the year and hang out, and I learned a lot just from his whole thing, um, just watching him go, and then he let me sit in his classes and. Um, play music for his students. He was teaching drama and stuff, so that was his whole thing. What insights did you get about, I mean, I guess about performing in general? I learned to sort of try to think on my toes Mm -hmm. and allow 
uh, things to happen that um, you might that you didn't expect or or that you would you know to to let these sort of things occur and see what you can do with them you know instead of trying to like oh no we can't do that you know right so um, I mean it sounds like improv skills yeah you know to absolutely. an extent. Absolutely. He taught me a lot about playing music in that way, you know. I was always into improv and stuff, but um, just watching him, I was always amazed at how, uh, you know, he just had that, he was always, he seems to always be connected to that, that stream of conscious thing, that, that cosmic kind of like, well, he just grabs something up from nowhere, mm-hmm. you know. Um and, uh, you know, to work with uh, somebody and uh, figure out who you are in that situation, you know. Um, but anyway, long story short, um, every year I got paid some, you know, good little chunk of money to do that. Nice. And so that was the first, that Eaterall recorder was the first um, sort of thing I bought. Oh, that's fun. From doing that fair. Cool. And I jumped on it and, you know, started recording lots of stuff. All the recordings I did from like 2000 on up were on that thing. And then before that, it was mostly DATs and uh, analog gear. Mm-hmm. Six tracks, eight tracks. Um, I'm obsessed with it, you know. And uh, So by the time you made it to the radio show, then in like the early 2010s, you've got some stuff that was on tape that you've converted that into yeah. cuz you must have worked on it ultimately in, in either some kind of digital workstation or maybe on a computer. Right. Right. I was mostly recording uh everything I had that was on tape. I had I had some version of on um on my computer. And then I also back in the early 90s um the first really nice recorder I got was a Sony DAT, like a portable DAT, mm-hmm. you know. And I used to bring that everywhere and and uh, just capture whatever. And they, um, I knew, and I knew that was going to be important, even though I didn't have the equipment to like, because this is like ninety one or somewhere around there, ninety one or ninety two. Uh, I didn't have the equipment. There, it wasn't really even available. Or it was too expensive to take those recordings and manipulate them too right. much. You know. Um, around 96, I bought my first, um, sampler and then that was, that was like an Ensonic, um, ASR 88. And, um, that was, that's, I considered that to be my first computer. Right. Know? Cause that had a SCSI hard drive mm-hmm. and you had, uh, digital ins and outs that the DAT could go from that into the sampler. Okay. And so no loss of right, any right. quality, you know, and um, that started me on a thing where I would record all um, my band's shows and um, take it back and look for like, we would always do jams in our songs, just like anybody else, you know, if you're into improv mm-hmm. and stuff. Every song had a moment where it was like you didn't know what you were gonna do, you know, and uh it was uh it was sweet to take that dat and feed it into the sampler and find parts mm-hmm. from like one song or something. You could you could take a couple of really choice parts and rearrange it into something that sounded like it was 
completely organized. Right. And as, like, it was one performance done by a band, you know? Um, to me, that was like science fiction back then. That right. Like the ability to do that. Um, you know, because on tape, you could do some wacky shit, but it was like, um, you know, one of the craziest things you could do is say, you know, have a four track or an eight or whatever it was and flip your tape over and run your tracks backwards Mm -hmm. on there. And, um, you know, but to like get in there and you could splice it, which I had done a couple of times, but those were mostly failures. You sort of physically splice yeah, the tape? Yeah, like oh go in gosh. there, splice the tape, and then put it back together, you know? Because wow. you read things like um, in the Beatles, um, what's the song, uh, Benefit for the Being of Mr. Kite? Uh-huh. Uh, it talks about how George Martin took, um, what's that instrument? It's kind of like, um, uh, is it a Calliope? You know, uh, it's like a circus instrument. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you're talking you about. Know, he took, I have read it, but I don't think I have ever said the word aloud. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and uh, he took a recording of that and and just cut it all up and then taped it all back together. And that that's the middle section in being for the benefit of Mr. Wow, Kite so that you hear. Tape yeah, and it's just all kind of random, but. Mm-hmm. It was all played in the same key as the song, so it fits. Right. You know, it just fits in there somehow. And, uh, you know, but by the time you have samplers, it's like now you're, you're like, wow, you're, you're manipulating, like, time. Right. You know, oh, yeah. You can take this and put it here and Well, digital it. sampling in the computer is just so, it does feel like science fiction or some kind of yeah. magic. I mean, the facility now, it's just like, oh, I want to hear that. At a different tempo, or any tempo, or like sped yeah. up so far. What I really like is to find the point at which the digital glitchiness starts mm-hmm. to become like you hear the glitchiness more than because that has its right. own flavor. It does. So it's like in the same way that there was like, okay, there's tube amplifiers, you can overdrive the signal mm-hmm. and you can get this other sound. It's not a guitar doesn't make that noise, only yeah. an makes that noise. That's it. But now digital stuff is starting to do that and so like to see where where it comes out and where things that there was an in-between time where it always just sounds ugly like oh that like right. square uh <laughs> solid state distortion it's like <laughs> clipping yeah, yeah, it doesn't yeah, even yeah. sound like but it has its place you can get that to sound really cool like a snap or a clap or a snare drum in context absolutely absolutely you can and, and you know now that people hear it all the time it becomes part of the palette of sounds right. you know so it's like at first, yeah, you would try. I used to call that um, uh, digital wank. You know, it was like this weird, <laughs> yeah, exactly, kind of it artifacts. Like, yeah, it, like, it does weird. It's like because it's a digital algorithm. Uh-huh. It's trying to like there's a uh-huh. there's a computer trying to grab hold of the thing and make sense of it, but it's yeah. just getting two signals that are conflicting. Right. So it's not like a. a tube thing where it's just it's one-to-one it's like there's too much in so it begins this kind of predictable pattern of fuzziness there's this unpredictable quality of the digital stuff Mm -hmm. yeah that's for sure yeah or like when people do the you know the janky auto-tune is a whole Uh vibe now and it's the jankiness of the auto-tune has become an instrument exactly exactly and it reminds me you know uh 
when uh, people are like, oh, you know, when people are against it, it just reminds me back in the day when people are against, you know, people um, scratching records and stuff like that. (laughs) You know, it's that same kind of like, no, you can't do that. Well, we're doing it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know. We're doing it. We're recording it. We're pressing it on wax. Yeah. We're selling it. This part, that's the sound right there, you know? Yeah. Um, it's fun to play with these things because it's, it, it always leads to something unexpected. Like when people invent something to do something like auto tune mm-hmm. and then people use it to get really way out there, you know, just do some whack kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I love to see, you know, and people bend things, um, to the point where they almost break or they do break, you know, and. That's really, you know, where you're getting on the edge of figuring out what this stuff will do. Mm-hmm. That sampler, I love those. Um, I still have that one. It's And it's still useful today, although, you know, there's a million things that'll do it faster and better. Right. You know, but it's still a really good piece of uh, equipment. There are people who have groups that are like, they swear on the sound of that machine. Right. <laughs> and I believe them, too. I I, um, I listen to it, and I'm like, it does sound really good. There's something about the way they built um, those particular machines, the ASRs. They had a few different ones. And they're still, like, uh, you know, for a while, when they kind of went out of phase, when they were about 10 years old, they were kind of prices went down. But now, if you were to go... And try to grab up uh, an ASR rack or, a, or an ASR-10 or an ASR-88. Um, they're like, you're paying about what you would have paid for it new. Right, yeah. You know, it's become a piece of classic gear. Yeah, and it depends know? what people are listening to as well. A lot of that stuff, you know, that was obscure now is, you know, mainstream classic music. Yeah, and people read about their, their heroes making their records on these things. And they want to, you know, if they, uh, they want to try it. They want right. to see what that whole process is like, you know. Yeah, well, it's unique. I mean, having to play the sampler like an instrument, it mm-hmm. kind of uh, forces you into a certain kind of workflow. And so you can kind of understand not only how, but like why some of those songs are put together. The way yeah, that. absolutely. I remember this um, one recording my friend and I did. And we called it dust, you know, like, um, <laughs> it was, uh, it was a reference to like the weed we were getting at the time, <laughs> which was like always dry, breaking. Yeah, dusty. it was dry. Like you bought it and like somebody maybe had a lemon peel or something in there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> as soon as that comes out, it's like within a day, it just turns into dust. <laughs> um, but we recorded our friend playing a drum beat and, um, then we also recorded um, the cymbal crash. And when we had that cymbal crash alone on the sampler, you can go through all the keys. And, of course, it's changing the pitch of it. We found this really, you know, way down, maybe two octaves below where it was originally hit. You know, maybe even three octaves. You hit it, and it was just this awesome bass sound. That's know? cool. And it's like, wow, you know, that is, that's where that whole science fiction thing comes in because it's like, well, we could never do that. Right. Before that, you know, now anyone could do that, you know. But back then it was like, 
And then that became like the bass of the song, you know? Right. We just had the beat, the bass, I put a little nylon string guitar on it, and my friend talked over it, and that's all it was. But it, the sound of it was so cool. Um, yeah, that's right. Well, that's the sound of that specific type of sampler, too, I'm sure, because I've mm-hmm. tried to sample some stuff in, like, the, the whatever the circuit is that they're putting it through. Like, after yes. a certain, once you've warped it too much, it, like, just doesn't move the speaker anymore. Yeah. But it sounds like that one has still had some meat in the low end. Yes, it totally did. That's probably why it's so sought after. I, I think that's what it is about the Ensonics, because they were, the fidelity was really nice. I mean, this was like... You know, I remember when I got it, I, um, and I'd been waiting, you know, it was, it was, like I said, I got that, that original DAT player around 91, and then I got that sampler probably around 96, and I had been, like, you know, scrounging and waiting to be able to just get this thing, because it was like, I, you know, I was reading, it was a lot, a lot of the work that was being done on it was, like, in hip-hop and stuff like that. And I didn't necessarily want to do hip-hop. I I like it, and I was doing some, but I just wanted it as the tool to make whatever. Right. You know, you can record um, all kinds of stuff. Um, one of the processes, we would record the band live a lot. We would record, um, or record just the drums and the bass, or the whole band, but only record the drums and the bass. And um, so a lot of times we would use that live track. Most of the time we would use that live track. But sometimes we would be like, you know, this section here is really all we need. So we just take out that little mm-hmm. portion of the bass and the drums, put it on the sampler, find the perfect, you know, loop for it, and then throw that back on like an eight track. And then that would become the basic track. And then we pile it every, everything up on top of that. That's cool. You know, and it was just a really useful tool. I remember uh, the funny thing about it was before I had a, a SCSI hard drive that could hold a lot of information, we were saving it all on floppy disks, which are just like 1.5 megabytes right. of information, right? So... If you had a sound um, that took up more, you just needed to have multiple discs ready. You'd label it one, two, three, and four. Uh, so when you load it up, you can go in that order and get it loaded up. Um, and we had a song. <laughs> we had a song called uh, called "Jesus Was a Player," and <laughs> and we were saving the sample of of the loop that we recorded for it. And we didn't know if we had enough floppies. And it kept saying, saving Jesus, saving Jesus, saving <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Just cracking up. Like, and we knew that if we didn't have enough, we were going to have to run over to like Walmart or something and, wow. and get a bunch more discs. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can only imagine. Because like, I, I caught the tail end of that. I remember like writing a paper for school and saving it on a floppy. And mm-hmm. I can only imagine trying to do any audio stuff right. in that format i mean it literally it's it sounds like to me it sounds like trying to use a printing press yeah (laughs) everything's slow and everything is like you know if you have a good audio sample and it takes up some time 
that, that could be like four floppy disks, you know? And if you lose one of them, you're screwed, you know? Like, <laughs> would it let you, like, load one, two, and then four? Would it, like, not... No, would, you, you had to have wow. it in the right order. If it didn't have everything, it wouldn't let you do it. Oh, my God. Um, I remember sometimes not having enough disks... And it was late at night, so there was nothing, there was nobody, uh, nowhere you can get them. And um, just leaving the thing on, leaving the sampler on yeah. for the next day. Right. And just, <laughs> you know, you can't save it. Oh my God. get up in the morning, right. get a disc, and save the rest <laughs> of your file. When <laughs> we still were thinking, this is advanced shit. Right. <laughs> Yeah, which is crazy. I the other thing that I think about now is eventually we'll be able like we'll be recording all of our music and all of our podcasts and everything just directly like brain to machine interface. It'll mm-hmm. be Neuralink and we'll be like, Oh man, remember when you had to do anything? Like now I just think about my whole year's calendar. And it just you know, like that the I know. It's <laughs> it's weird. I I I think about like I know that Neuralink kind of thing is is really happening. It's blowing my mind kind of how we're figuring it out like we're um we're reverse engineering our brains. Right. You know what I mean to figure this stuff out. Yeah. You know. Um like getting somebody to um move a pointer on a screen. Have mm-hmm. you read about that That's, kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Like, (laughs) you know, you're just like hooked up. Yeah. And eventually we'll be like, you know, we'll be working with samples. We'll be like a little stretch, adding reverb to stuff just by just looking at a screen. Yeah. And just all of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. I can see it. It's, it's, and what I feel like is going on is that we're slowly you know like like we're reverse engineering it and we're we're kind of making a map of the brain you know um, right. as we're doing it and um no it's i wonder what we're gonna there's gonna be some weird kind of discoveries in terms of like kind of patterns and and um things that that go on there you know but uh well i just can't wait to have a band with robots in it (laughs) yeah you know like instead of a loop station it's like you play it once but then you stomp on the loop station Mm -hmm. a robot version of you like is holding a physical guitar and it starts doing what you were just doing so did you ever see um this was a few years back pat Metheny came through with his orchestra the orchestrion i did i saw that performance and it was really yeah, yeah I, I guess that that's a, that's a band with robots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, is, is that's exactly what you're talking about in a way. And I I saw John Jackson was there. I saw he was there. Uh, you know, I saw him when he was walking out. And um, yeah, I you know I have this thing. I I've um, <laughs> Pat Metheny's an interesting character. Um, when I was a kid, I was dating a girl who's uh, and I was just starting to learn guitar. And uh, his her dad had a couple of Pat Metheny records, and he was like, "This guy's supposed to be good. I hate him." <laughs> you know? So he gave me the tapes, and I would listen to him. At first, I was like, uh, "You know, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff comes off, especially if you're a kid like 
I am. I'm growing up in the the late 80s. I'm into heavy rock. You know, I'm into Hendrix, um, Randy Rhodes, and Black Sabbath, and all, and Metallica mm-hmm. and stuff. So you're listening to Pat Metheny, and you're like, well, this sort of sounds like elevator right. music, you know? But as you sort of um, compare it to real elevator music, you start being, you're like, wait, no, no, these these guys are really doing something here. Yeah, you we know. just hear the rock influence because it like compared to rock, it does. It sounds like elevator music, but I mean, it sounds like really heavy rock mm-hmm. next to actual elevator. Music. <laughs> exactly, because it's like there. You know, he's setting up some big cymbal hits. There are like some moments, like even though the guitar tone frequently stays very mellow, mm-hmm. it's still fusion. Yeah, he's doing some stuff, and uh, so I actually kind of got it. It's it it sort of you know, rubbed off on me after a while. I was like, oh, I kind of like it. And uh, I got to actually see him give a seminar a long time ago, and I thought he was a pretty interesting guy. And, and uh, then watching the orchestrion, I was like, wow, he's just taking this way to a whole other level. Like, this is basically looping and stuff that's going on. But he realized... And this is something I've always had a problem with, like with like you get a, a sound card or just something with a bunch of instruments in it, right? And they always sort of sound kind of like they're in a box or they're in their own space. They don't sound organic. Exactly. You know? And and you're like, Well, you know, and he must have been frustrated with that. And he said, No. What you need is you need these instruments in a real room. Right. Being played by real me- me- mechanisms yeah. yeah and that's the thing too is like now that the instrument is back in the room something can go wrong again because like yeah, yeah. if you're playing it out straight off the sound card like it can glitch out right but it's not the same as like literally every you know even something like a player piano there just are variables mm-hmm. in between the software and the hardware of that where like you know yeah. a, a hammer could get stuck on something. There's a little there's texture. An extra and, hole could be right. put in the paper. Yeah, and you hear the the physical room that you're in. I mm-hmm. think that's the mm-hmm. thing is the space more than anything. Mm-hmm. You but, can exist with it. I think that's a really important sort of lesson there about about these things, you know, and um, how to get them to sound organic. You know, they, they have to be played in a space. Um, I remember he was, he was doing his own sort of compositions that he, um, rehearsed and I'm sure there was some improv going on in there. Um, but then he would say, he said at the end, he like the second to last song or whatever, he was like, I always do one completely spontaneous improv, you know, every time I do this. So bear with me, it might just suck. (laughs) You know? Oh, right, because he does have some stuff where he's able to trigger stuff in real time, right? Yeah. Where it's, it's, uh, it's side-chained in some kind of way to the guitar, where right. he's playing a guitar and it's also hitting a, a vibraphone or something. Right, right. That's so cool. That's exactly right. right. And, and I think he was, you know, a lot of the loops and stuff weren't... They might have been some pre-programmed, sure there was, but a lot of it, even the stuff that was, you know, arranged was stuff that he was still laying down right there. And then he was, you know, he'd play the thing, it would start looping and then move on to something right, else. Right, I forgot about that element. And those were all, like, things that I think he rehearsed 
and made happen. Right, but there's still parts he has to execute on. Right. Yeah, right. again, anytime you can introduce that danger. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. You know, I think it's really exciting. And that's, I think that is something that he really, uh, really dug a lot. You know, I don't know if it, it always comes off, but he, I think that's, I've heard him talk before about um, improvisation. And I think that's what really sparks his, uh, you know, that's what, where he's really getting off on, you know. It's just, you said uh, you went to a master class or something? Yeah, I went to talk? a seminar. I saw him talk, yeah. you know. He uh, talked for like half hour. He, told, he talked about how um, he met Steve Morris and Jaco Pastoris in Miami. And then he, um, when he met those two guys, he immediately went home and was like, I got to go practice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, then later on, and he never went to school, so he never actually got his degree. He wouldn't he didn't go to his classes, so he just stayed around practicing. The only thing he went to was his ensemble class. Right, and um, he went to Berkeley next, and um, he kind of, in a way, failed out, but they hired him as an instructor. That's cool. You know, but I, mean, I, I didn't know that part of his story. Yeah, I think he did the same thing. He just never went to his classes. Uh-huh. So, uh, except for the ensemble, the stuff he liked. And then he, uh, and they were, you know, they were like, we don't know what we're going to do with you, but you're really good. So, why don't we just hire you as a, as a right. teacher? And he, I think, now he didn't talk about this, but I think he actually got, um, Fired from that job for smoking pot with one of his students or something. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, that I didn't was... know that Pat Metheny had a bad boy image. Yeah, I don't think he uh, does that so much now, but um, he he'll in interviews he talks about in his when he was younger. You know, <laughs> um, it's funny. Yeah, which again is hilarious. Like the the rock star thing. Mm-hmm. But then listening to the music again from the rock idiom and it's like this elevator music artist is like <laughs> yeah. getting thrown out of Berkeley. For smoking weed. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> and that could be a rumor because that's all it was to me. He never said that when he was speaking. Um, but people in the guitar department used to say it. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, um, wow. you know, that that was a thing. But then again, he got thrown out, um, you know, allegedly, but he, um, but they invited him back to give a sem- you know, do a seminar. Right. You know. Man, that's so interesting. That's a good place to be. <laughs> this is kind of, I mean, this is a huge change of subject. Can you speak yeah. at all about the formation of the Funky Miracle? Yeah, yeah. Um, so back in the early nineties, we used to go to um, go to uh, the jazz fest, and the jazz fest in New Orleans is always the last weekend of April and the first weekend of May. And I remember the first time we went was like I had just moved here, and my friend Kent was like, "Hey, we're gonna go to New Orleans for the jazz fest. You should come." You should just definitely come. Like, I don't know. I don't have that much money and all that stuff. And he's like, dude, if you can scrape together a hundred bucks, you'll be fine. And and it really was like that. It was like Marnie and I basically sc- scraped together between the two of us, you know, <laughs> a little more than a hundred bucks. And um, we, we went up there with a, a crew of people. 
And we ended up staying in this little dive called Ladale's. Like the first hotel we went to, they were both dives. We knew we were going to stay in some right. really shitty place. <laughs> but uh, we uh, got there and it was totally booked. Um, and the, the lady brought us all the way up to the attic. So you could stay in here and there was like a tub of like, you know, brown water. <laughs> We're like, well, we'll get back to you. And we went across the street and we happened to um, get to this place called Ladeo, which is also a dive. But for some reason, um, the reservation in the front room, which is like a room almost this big, um, the reservation fell through. So they gave us like that room. Um, they say it only have four people and we had like 10, you know, <laughs> and we just were, we just all ended up paying like $5 a night between us for this, right. this room. It became like the Gainesville scam. <laughs> um, like <laughs> yeah, for years and years we were like getting that room and, um, I remember like two years on the person at the desk is like, you're not the Gainesville people, are you? <laughs> you know? But we used to always get that room and, and have like as many people as we can fit in it and basically be paying between five and $10 a night. And the, the, um, uh, the fest was only 15 a day, you know, back then. Mm-hmm. And we didn't go for both weekends. We always went the last, the first weekend of May. And so, um, you know, that cost, uh, like 30 bucks or something. And we, we actually had plenty, we, we had plenty, but with a hundred bucks, we had plenty of money to, uh, walk around Bourbon street and all that. But that was where I learned about the meters, you know? So that was right, where I first right. saw okay, the, cool. the funky meters mm-hmm. and, um, you know, a couple of years into it, it became like a thing we were doing every year for a while. And um, this is probably around 90, I want to say around 93 or something. Um, my friend, uh, we were all in different bands. My friend Cody was like, hey, we should just start a, a meters tribute band, you know, and, um, you know, just for fun. And um, so I was like, yeah. And we, we ended up getting... Um, a really good keyboard player, this guy Jeff Knorr. Um, and uh, we had a couple of drummers. And we actually, it grew. After a while, we had like six people in the band, but um, generally only four would play at a time. Mm-hmm. There was a couple of times where we, um, once we did a festival where we had two drummers mm-hmm. and... Um, two bassists and, you know, cool. just did the whole, you know, put everybody in there, you know. Uh, but mostly we played with four and um, we made it like that so that we could just book gigs and whatever came up, whoever was available, we'd do it, you know. And um, after about a year or two, all of our other bands had collapsed and that was like our main band. So... um it, it, and it was just completely by accident that that happened. It was never intended to be anything more than just let's have some fun, you know. Uh, but it was such fun to do that um, we we kept that going from about 93 to about 98. And then, um, then eventually everyone kind of moved away. And I always had it in the back of my mind, well, 
as soon as I can find people, I'll do it again. Um, and I kind of almost started one, but then they just became other bands. And then around 2008, I think, I, I had another version of it with uh, Ricky Kendall and uh, my friend. Ricky was on drums on that one. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. What an interesting piece of history. Yeah, he was a pretty good drummer, you know, and... Uh, and it was his 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 friend Tony, which was uh, Ricky Kendall. Just I mean, for a little context, Ricky Kendall, who now is more known around town as like a singer songwriter, like right. guitarist, like not primarily known. Right. He even does that. Right, and um, I'll tell you what I was uh, uh, where I was going with that is well, his his friend Tony, who played with him, uh, was a student of mine. He played bass, and so we all had that going. And uh, you know, we didn't do a whole lot. We did a couple of shows, and I actually. Very soon after we were doing this, I, I went and saw his band play with Tony, and I was like, I saw him play, I saw him sing and all that, and I was like, what are you doing in this band, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, it didn't last long with those guys, but they were always, they were really fun. Um, I remember one, it's just off the, like, uh, my friend Tony's wife um, made some pies, and um, he to to give us um to give Marnie and I and he like drove away and they were on his roof and they <laughs> flew off you know I remember he went all the way home <laughs> after rehearsal and got a couple more slices and drove them back oh, that's, that's, nice. like, that's funny <laughs> they just flew off his roof <laughs> um and then um basically we were uh, you know starting to get together with um well Russ was a student. Russ was another um, teacher student for a while at the academy, and when that teacher left, he started taking with me, and then he was inviting me over to uh, their old jam spot off 16th. Do you, oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And so I was going out there, we were hanging, and um, I was starting to show him some of those songs, and I met Chris, and he was getting into it, and so... I can't remember. Well, I guess what happened was when we got this space, um, we were doing some jamming, and I was just like, well, you know, I think um, I'd like to start that up. I think it was actually with Jake, because I had met Jake, and I liked the way he played drums. He was loud, but I liked the way he played. He was able to do, without even knowing that he was doing it, he was able to do that sort of style that um, Zugaboo Modalise, the drummer, kind of does. Yeah, we lays down a, a deep, consistent pocket. Yeah. And then there's the kind of like hemiola thing that goes yes. over the top, and then it just, it's rolling. Exactly, and he does that. And yeah. He didn't even know who Zugaboo was, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I started giving him uh, recordings and all that, and I was like, yeah, let's do it. So we just started getting together on, like, Mondays, you know, and, and doing it, and eventually... Uh, um, Chris and uh, Russ jumped on board and um, also Chris Pierce. Chris Pierce was actually really into it. Um, he, he, in terms of like when we decided, oh, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to get this going again. Um, Chris was like immediately on board for a moment. It was just me, Chris and, um, and Jake. And then Russ jumped on board We've had a couple of people kind of on base, um, and they weren't uh, consistent, you know, in terms of coming to rehearsals. 
Right. Know? And so you that's know. its own groove that you got to lay down as a yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, just as a musician, you know, you yeah. um, showing up doing the thing. Yeah, you show up and you do the thing. So uh, that's how you know. It's part of the. It's like God. The, you know, somebody could be a kick-ass player, but it's like if they don't show up to rehearse, you're like, oh well. Can't can't do that. You know, you gotta you gotta have somebody who's gonna be there, and then, uh, you know, so that you know, Russ was there. Russ was doing it mm-hmm. and learning the stuff. And, uh, you know, and uh, Chris Robertson's always fun to play with because he just has this thing where um, if he doesn't know what he's going to do, if he doesn't know what to play, he just doesn't play. And he'll listen. You know what I mean? And Which is so key. Like, it sounds like nothing, but is so huge. I mean, and that's yeah. like, that's the missing part. I mean, next is just not showing up. That's the missing piece in so many people's playing. Is like, yeah, oh, I'm guilty. Where they just sound kind of out of place, and it could have just been replaced by rest. Right, could have just listened right there. <laughs> you know, I listen to old recordings, and I, I and I hear myself playing. I'm like, mm, I should just shut the hell up yeah. right there. <laughs> you know. I can also tell when I get distracted, like, even because it's like, you don't sometimes get distracted enough to totally stop the melodic line, but it's like, you can tell when a line is like, really inspired in the beginning, but then you get another idea, and then it's kind of like, and it kind of, you you land it, but not quite. Yeah. That's the fun of it, though, too, you know, just jamming and seeing Mm -hmm. where things go. Um, there, There is a fun thing about jamming where it's like getting into the the muck of it, you know, um, like, yeah, you gotta be willing to go into that space where anything can happen. It could, be, it could get really bad, you know, it could just mm-hmm. get really bad, but, but inevitably, even if it's a really terrible, horrible dram, somewhere in there, there's usually some little nugget, you know, and occasionally you'll have a thing where from beginning to end, it's just amazing. So you know? true. That does happen. People who don't improvise or are just getting into it, like, I tell them to remember that that can and will eventually happen. Like, you will, even before you feel really comfortable about it, accidentally, you will just sometimes have a solid minute, solid two minutes, solid three minutes of jam where it sounds planned out, or at least together, and it can totally reorganize how you see your own playing. Yeah, yeah. And that, um, the chemistry that happens there... Um, that's an interesting thing. It's almost like sort of when everyone's sort of in there, in there, in that space and you're just vibing that it feels like ESP or something, you know? Yes. It feels like you're psychically connected. Yeah, well, it's kind of, I mean, each musical instrument is sort of like when they put the uh, endoscope down your esophagus and then it's up on a screen, it's like there's something that your body is doing that there's a device picking up that vibration and it's broadcasting it to the rest of the room. So it's like everybody, you know, like the drum kit is like a big acoustic version of like a pair of cameras on your hands. (laughs) And then little details that you would never think about until seeing someone's hands like broadcast across an entire wall of a room it's like oh man there are little like uh emotional nuances i can kind of hear again hear them like getting distracted hear them getting other thoughts hear them 
in their process in a way that you can't until it's broadcast like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that reminds me of the sort of things that happen when you're playing and you're um, just dealing with the own, your own uh, physical limitations. You know, like um, you go to hit a note and it just comes out wrong, you know. Right. Um, and then what do you do with that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, again, well, like the improv thing, it's kind of you have to be able to yes and yourself in mm-hmm. the situation. It's like, okay, I wanted it to go bah, but it went bah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, can I be okay with that? Can I yes and bah? Right, right. When I didn't want it there. Right. And you could either, you can ignore it and let it go, or you can kind of see if there's a way to bring it, bring it in or let it sort of, but it is like what you do with it. It's like, exactly. it, it's the same thing um, in... Uh, sort of conversations you know it's like you're 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 talking and there's a word you're trying to remember but you can't remember the yeah the it's like word. How, how long do you go before you say well anyway and then you're back into it yeah you know because i will sometimes i'll ch- i'll find myself chasing a lick it's like it's you hear you'll hear me play something kind of twice but it's really just the same it's like i had to go back mm-hmm. and like do mm-hmm. it again yeah yeah but sometimes that works. I mean, sometimes it brings us back to something you wouldn't have repeated. And so then it, it you know, a lick can become a riff in that right, way. Right, right. No, a lot of times those sort of little things um, end up, you're like, you know, ha- maybe half the time you're like, oh, that was just a mistake. But another half the time you, you play it and you're like, ooh, there is something to that that could be played with. And right. then all of a sudden you're doing something you didn't think you were going to do. Yeah. You know. I always say um, a lot of times people's individual styles aren't in terms of music or whatever, maybe. Um, it's not what you do well. It's it's all the things that, um, it, you know, it's all the, it's like the, the mistakes and the, exactly. the weird stuff. Yeah. That's you can't a, hear the amp until you overdrive it. Yeah. Until you try to force more info through it than can than it can handle, you don't really see it ever. Yeah, it's it, it kind of makes up how you uh, deal with things and how you know. And it's like those weird mistakes or whatever you want to call it. It's like that's what that's where the style is. You yeah. Know? Well, it gives you context. It's like I had a friend who like you would say something. And instead of being yes, he'd be like, plan Stan. Like he's saying, that sounds like a plan, Stan. Right. But he just like, because of the way he said it, it's like he was able with way less information to like get the thing across. And I think that's it. It's like people's limitations allow doing stuff wrong to like sound cool and like still get the, you know, like it wouldn't yeah. be cool to hear a robot or a computer mess it up. Until you put it in the right context, like right. we were talking about, you know, let's turn it up until we get it to glitch. Yeah. But uh, but you... now that we're closing on the end of the hour here, maybe we should uh, jam a little bit. Sure. See if we can push so much information through our own brains that we glitch out. And uh, and call it there. We'll actually, we'll, okay. call it, we'll pause and take a break and we'll, and we'll turn it back on. But man, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And it's fun to talk about these things. Yeah, get it on yeah and it surely and get it somewhere yeah it won't be the last time either cool sounds good alright sampled bits and pieces I love that and made like songs and stuff yeah. and then and then sampled those songs made of sampled stuff I feel like
feel like I want to play bass. I feel like I want to get more cerebral. Cool. Switch. Usually, what happens in my brain is like eventually, just the drums want to come in. So maybe I'll <laughs> end there. Yeah. some cool little um you don't you know like in chords and stuff like that mm -hmm. there's these patterns you know coming out of the sort of the diatonic stuff mm -hmm. where you can cut around to uh new like little spots like i always like this thing where you kind of have major major step to another major chord and then that takes you out of where you were. I feel you. You know what I'm saying? Uh, then you kind of just 
recorded some of it. Awesome. Awesome. It yeah, me too. Yeah, we're done with our thing now. Cool, y'all. Video. Nice to see you guys. I had some of those duck eggs oh, today. Oh, what you think? <laughs>